Hey everyone, welcome to the Health Focus Podcast. My name is Robbie Bennett, and on today's episode, I'm gonna be interviewing a functional medicine expert by the name of Umaro Kadogan. On this episode, we're gonna be talking about Umaro's health journey, what exactly uh, genes are, the act of methylation, and the role in health and disease. So this is quite an in-depth episode, so what I'd recommend is everyone grab a notebook and take notes throughout. So hope you enjoy guys and let's get into the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so for any of the listeners that are listening right now, myself and yourself, we met briefly in Dublin a couple of months back when you were uh, speaking on the DNA Life course, which I found fantastic. Yeah. I was really, really Thank you. And for any of the listeners uh, that aren't familiar with you, can you give them a bit of a, a brief introduction about yourself and what exactly you do? Yes. I'll, uh, I'll try to make a long story short. So <laughs> my name is Umaro Kadogan. I'm Dan- a Danish citizen, but uh, my father's Bajan, my mother's Danish. And I stumbled onto functional medicine at an early age because I became really ill. So I've always been really into cooking and biology and living organisms, even like as a toddler, as a child, I was fascinated by food and by biology and nature. And as a teenager, I actually studied enough biology and biochemistry on my own, above and beyond what was necessary for school to, co- to cover pretty much the equivalent of a bachelor in human biochemistry. So by the age of 18, I had you know, studied what would cover more or less a bachelor in human biochemistry on top of what I had to do for school. And then the age of 18, I came back to Denmark after having lived abroad for quite a few years and thought I'd have a sabbatical. And originally, I was supposed, this is back in 95, by the way, and I was supposed to have a year off in Denmark, just relax from school and studies, and earn some money, and then go off to the UK to study. But I never left because during that year, I became severely ill. So I came down with inflammatory bowel disease, um, something in between rheumatoid arthritis and reactive arthritis, and also, in neurological inflammation that was finally diagnosed as atypical sclerosis, and then the beginnings of um, autoimmune hepatitis. How old lost were you at that stage? Pardon? How old were you at that stage? 18. 18. Oh my God. Okay. And all yeah. of that happened to you. All of that happened, and I also lost a lot of weight. So I lost more than 40 kilograms of weight within a year. Okay. Uh, and I also had symptoms that would have qualified for a diagnosis of fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. And within the conventional healthcare system, you know, the doctors are like, this is a really interesting case, but we have no clue what to do because the drugs we've used for run disease are counterindicated for the other one. So back in the mid nineties, you know, the selection of drugs available for autoimmune diseases, multiple sclerosis and so on, so forth, there weren't that many. So, Initially, no one there treat me because they were worried that the side effects would be worse than the effect of the medicine. So for a couple of years, I just got progressively worse. And I would go back and forth, go into the hospital when I had really bad flare-ups, be, be admitted, then be sent back home. The words come back and you feel worse. And that happened again around my 20th birthday. And that point, I thought, no more. Because if I'm to wait until I'm any worse than now, then, or worse off, then next time I'll enter in an ambulance, leave in a coffin. Okay. And at that moment, it's a, you know, it dawned on me. One thing is that nutrition, diet, and lifestyle can be either healthy or unhealthy. You know, so yeah. obviously, knows bro- broccoli outperforms donuts, uh, right? Or sweating from exercising rather than sweating. <laughs> well, in this day and age, some people debate that. 
<laughs> Some people debate that, but you know, but 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 in, in the scientific consensus is yeah, quite yeah. clear. And and I and because I've always been to biology and food and also used to be a basketball player, I'd actually had a healthy. So it wasn't I didn't become ill just because I lived off like donuts and uh, chips and crisps and poor food. But at that point I thought maybe there's something above and beyond food just and lifestyle just being healthy or unhealthy. Maybe you can literally start using food as medicine at an individual level. And I thought there's, there's nothing to lose and everything to win. And at that moment, all that, you know, nerding, uh, nerdiness with biology and biochemistry all of a sudden became an advantage because I had a good theoretical foundation to start understanding and literally mapping out my body and my biology and biochemistry. So I embarked on that journey, also got help from lots of knowledgeable people, both in Denmark and abroad, and little by little solved the puzzle as to why my body had become foe instead of friend, and figured out how to literally use nutrition, diet, also nutrients at pharmacological doses, and at certain times, precision use of pharmaceuticals to get back to health. Um, And so that worked, and hence that's what I work with these days, this intersection between cooking, diet, lifestyle, biology, and health. Um, so I stumbled upon functional medicine before knowing what it was. And yeah. then I found functional medicine, the Institute for Functional Medicine, and like I'm at home now. Um, and then I've just worked in this field ever since. So I have a clinic where I see people one-to-one. I have written a lot of books in Danish, but hopefully in 2020, some of them will be translated into English. So I've written 14 books so far, uh, including some of the best-selling health and cookbooks in Denmark. I have a TV show on Danish, one of the big, two big national TV stations that's very similar to Is There a Doctor in the House on the BBC? Um, I do a lot of lecturing at all sorts of levels from very so public health lectures to the DNA course uh, where we met. I sit in research collaborations, uh, both in Denmark and abroad, with, including projects where we're looking at nutrition, diet, lifestyle, and ADHD, and, and we'll try to do some good clinical studies because it's kind of a no-brainer. Obviously, movement, exercise, sleep, diet has an impact on ADHD, but it always comes back to yes, but we don't have any blinded, placebo-controlled, properly done trials. So we thought, okay, we'll do that. Um, and also sit in, on a, a research group where we're looking into the changes in energy metabolism and neurodegenerative diseases that seem to go across the board and uh, where, you know, initially with multiple sclerosis, but also uh, probably Parkinson's and Guillain-Barre and so forth. And then we're looking at how we can try to shift energy metabolism back to normal because that seems to ameliorate the disease in animal models. Okay. So do that, and then I do a lot of media work and consulting, and then I actually have sort of a, a, a health health what was like health counselor educational course in Denmark, a six month course in foundational health for people who already work with health or want to start working with health. Gotcha. So, so that, work? that's the go ahead. So that's the short short version of a rather long story. Yeah. So you're working with all different population types. I'm aware that you're working with all sorts of athletes, maybe they'd be crossfitters, all the way to general populations with yeah. many sorts of diseases. Yeah. So the yes. whole spectrum. Yes. So um from, from chatting to you at the DNA Life course, I found that it was probably the most, no, it was the most comprehensive course I've been to on genetics. It 
took all these complex topics from SNPs and specific genes and your interaction with your environment and nutrition and just put it into one course. I, I was really blown away because there's so much misinformation out there and there's so much controversy. And sometimes it's sometimes yeah. even over, overcomplicated. But for my listeners, some will be trainers, some will be nutritionists, but some will just be my own clients or just general population. Yeah. So yeah. essentially, when we, when we talk about genetics, can you give the listeners a brief introduction or a brief description of essentially what are, what are your genetics, what are genes, and yeah. what is your, your phenotype? Yeah. Well, so genes, obviously, is the best way to describe it is think of genes. Obviously, it's DNA, but that's kind of like mm. the blueprint. So in our genes, we have the information available on how to build a living organism, how to run it, and how to repair it, and also sort of the emergency manual if things go wrong what can we do to get things back in place so, so it's like you have a big encyclopedia of knowledge necessary to create a living organism build it repair it day-to-day -day running and also crisis management and then you have to get that information out and use it appropriately so you have to you know open the right pages of the right chapters at the right time to use the information in there and that information is translated into proteins uh, that either have structural functions or messenger functions or modulate your biochemistry and so those are your genes right yep. so that's your, your, your genotype and that your genotype rarely same but how that's expressed just as if you had a you know a, a, say an encyclopedia with uh, 50 volumes what information you get if you act upon is very different than whether you open volume one or volume 10 so it's a matter of finding a way to make sure you get the right information expressed at the right time and that's where genes they obviously have impact on our health but they're not sort of linear forward deterministic as in those are your genes therefore your biology and your biochemistry will be in a certain way yeah because there's an interaction with environment so the environment changes how our genes are expressed um, so a good you know saying to remember is genes load the gun but environment pulls the trigger so you might have genes that predispose you for inflammation. I certainly have with all those autoimmune diseases. You might have genes that predispose you for obesity or you might have genes that predispose you for high cholesterol levels or poor control of blood pressure, but they only really cause damage if they're expressed as a result of the environment. So if you have genes that you know, make you more prone to putting on weight, if you live in an, in an environment, you have a lifestyle that won't allow that to happen, then it, then it doesn't matter. So if you, you could take some of all the genes we know that predispose them for obesity yeah. and stick them in the outback of Australia with aborigines living old school, and they certainly wouldn't be obese. They might weigh one or two kilograms more than the other aborigines, but they wouldn't have an issue, um, yeah. right? So, 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 and that's the, your phenotypes, and that's really how these genes are expressed, so the outcome. Or you could also imagine, like, if you have, say, a great composer, say, uh, Mozart, right? He, Mozart has many different pieces of music he's written. Some are for soloists, some are yep. for groups, and and that's so great music. But for that to be expressed properly, you actually need brilliant musicians, and you need a conductor. So if you have a philharmonic orchestra, you need great music, you need high quality instruments, you need great musicians, but you also need a director that puts it all together and makes the final result greater than all the individual pieces and also make sure that everything's coordinated. So imagine you have a philharmonic orchestra with the greatest musicians in the world, but none of them are playing together. They all just want to get their bit done. If you were to be the audience, that would be disastrous. You'd have all these egotistical, albeit fantastic musicians, and they're all just trying to solo and no one makes space for anyone else. It's like someone's playing, like, I want to overpower you because yeah, I want you to listen to me. So it just becomes, you know, like, 
sounds of chaos instead, right? So therefore, yeah. yes, genes certainly have an impact on our health or on our predisposition for certain health problems. But as long as we modify the environment, we can change the outcome. So you could also say that our genes can make us weaker or stronger in certain areas or in terms of the risk of certain diseases or in terms of how we respond to different environments and stimuli. And, for, and irregardless of what genetics you have, we know that the foundation of health still matters, right? With food, don't eat too many calories. Eat lots of plant foods. Make sure you get healthy fats, get enough protein, but from sensible sources, you know, move every day, whether it's everyday movement like walking, cycling, uh, walking your dog, pushing a, you know, a pram or stroller, and exercise every, anything from a couple of times a week to every day, depending on what shape you're in. Get enough sleep. Make sure you de-stress. Uh, don't drink or drink little uh, and in moderation. Don't smoke. You know. So irregardless of what genes you have, those, still thing, those things still hold true. But obviously then depending on what genetics you have, there might be things you need to emphasize more, be more or specific tweet. or particular about within the boundaries or the found, sort of general foundational health. And there might also be things you normally would consider in you know, very instances it would be good that would might not be necessary but it might even backfire especially when it comes to intervention so okay, you know, there perfect. might be genes that, that have an impact saying that the normal nutraceutical intervention for certain health problem might not work for that person but if you know the genetics then you can figure out what to do instead yeah. rather than wasting time and effort on something that where there's no response perfect because a lot of the time i'll have some clients come to me with some sort of genetic testing done and like, like you just said there, your genes don't define you. They might, no. they might predispose you, but they don't predetermine yeah. your fate. And people exactly. see certain, certain genes and all of a sudden they say, oh, crap, well, I'm going to develop diabetes or I've got the VDR mutation, so I'm more susceptible to autoimmune diseases. And a little yeah. bit of information can be dangerous in, in a sense as well. So you mentioned a couple of factors there as well that can impact your genetics. So your, your phenotype, your, your, how your lifestyle interacts with your, your genes or your environment. Exactly. And exactly. And yeah. we look at your, your environment or, or my environment, I'm living in Ireland currently, you know, for about eight, yeah. six to eight months of the year, we're not getting very much sunlight. So uh, vitamin D and the VDR mutation, which is the vitamin D receptor mutation, but we look at sort of uh, genes and the interaction with our environment. Can you talk a little bit more about that as well? Yeah, well, so we, let's use VDR variations uh, as an example so we know that genetically there's a big difference or vari there's genetic variation in how effective our vitamin d receptors are yeah. you think of vitamin d receptors literally as cellular ears that are supposed to hear the messages sent through vitamin d and so you might have people who have stellar vitamin d receptors in other yeah. words their cells are really sensitive to vitamin d they will hear the message being sent and then you might have people who have lower functioning of vitamin D receptors. It has nothing to do with whether they produce vitamin D or not when they get sunlight, or whether they absorb it from food or how fast they break it down, but they have lower sens cellular sensitivity. So obviously too little vitamin D is an issue irregardless. But if you then have poor functioning vitamin D receptors and you get lower levels of vitamin D, that's sort of a compounded problem because there's too little to go around in the first place. And then your cells aren't responding properly. So, so vitamin D receptor variants that decrease functioning might not cause autoimmune disease, but in the wrong environment could be associated with a higher risk or poor disease control, unless you then make sure that you push your vitamin D levels right to the top of the normal range. So I know for me, 
um, I have several vitamin D receptor va- gene variants that yep. make my vitamin D receptors pretty deaf. So I need to keep my vitamin D levels at about 140 nanomoles per liter, which is high within the normal range and not that far from what might potentially be toxic. And if I go under 120, then I know some of these autoimmune and inflammatory problems, they start, you know, I can feel them again. Obviously, I don't allow that to happen. But whereas you'd say, well, normally people aren't deficient in vitamin D until they go lower than 50 uh, nanomoles per liter and probably ideal range is 80 nanomoles or higher. But for me, already having like, you know, uh, the troll come out of the box with these autoimmune diseases, then I need to keep my levels higher and then I just need to eat, have to take high doses of vitamin D to maintain my levels. But if I do that, then my poor or so death vitamin D ears aren't really causing trouble for me. Gotcha. So that, okay. that would be a good idea of how this gene environment interaction or how genetics might mean that there's something you have to be more particular about. So if, that also means if you have these variants where your vitamin D receptors aren't as responsive and you live in a part of the world where you get less sunshine or you just don't get much sunshine. I mean, you could live in Las Vegas and still be like an indoor person, right? Yeah. Then you need to make sure you get enough through diet and supplements and and you might, you know, if you were thinking preventively, if you've done your genetics and you see you have poorly functioning vitamin D receptors, you might want to check, say, every winter and every summer, check your levels to make sure you constantly keep them in the ideal range. Because otherwise, it's almost like you get punished three times if you go too low for vitamin D, not just for the low vitamin D, but also the decrease in sensitivity on top of that. Yeah, and what I've found is quite common in Ireland is the VDR mutation. It, it is pretty common. And I, do, yeah. I generally, when I'm checking someone's serum uh, 25-hydroxy vitamin D, it, it is low if they're in supplementing yeah. with it. So what may some symptoms be of, let's say, serum low vitamin D or even having the mutations there? You mentioned uh, well, yeah. predisposition to autoimmune diseases, but is there anything else? Yeah, well, vitamin D obviously has an impact on almost anything you can yep. think of. It's, it's, it's easier to make a list of what vitamin D won't impact. <laughs> so, but if the words to, you know, my usual checklist, irregardless of genetics, would be okay, people have high blood pressure or poor blood pressure control, you want to check your vitamin D. If they have problems with controlling blood, blood glucose, you want vitamin D. That's not to say that vitamin D will cure type 2 diabetes, but actually, type 2 diabetics who move from lower levels of vitamin D into the high range usually get somewhat better glycemic yeah, control. Improve so that would be improved symptoms. Um, any sort of musculoskeletal problems, whether it's pain, lack of power, sort of like feeling tired, fatigued, or an inability to recover from exercise, physical work, or an inability also to recover from injury, whether it's acute injury, overuse injury, you'd want to look at that. If you think of a high family risk of cancer, especially um, you know, that there might be an association there because vitamin D has some impact on cell growth and cell differentiation. Yeah. Um, so mentally as well, because no vitamin D is quite important for neurocognitive health. You might want to look there. Inflammatory problems, and there's the whole gamut, eczema, uh, you know, asthma, arthritis, yeah. uh, psoriasis, um, autoimmune diseases, you know, gut problems, and even digestive. Vitamin D has quite an impact on decision and of the gut microbiota. So vitamin D actually changes what bacteria and other critters live inside you, and it changes how they behave. Um, and also susceptibility to infection or sort of a weak immune system because vitamin D at one end of the scale, if you think about immune function, is used to send signals that terminate inflammation to move yeah. into resolution. 
but it's also used to create signals that initiate immune responses. You know, so if you're low in vitamin D, you sort of get the worst at both ends of with your immune system. Uh, the flu, the common cold, uh, sore throat, pneumonia, and so forth, they just have a much easier time getting hold of you or settling in you. And then on the other hand, anything with sort of chronic long-term inflammation, you have a decreased ability to shut that down uh, or terminate it. Gotcha. So, 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 so with, with me, I mean, with my clients, I tend to test vitamin D on everyone if possible, um, unless like it's not possible because the finances or their GP. Now, are you talking the, the VDR gene? Are you talking uh, the serum level? Serum level for everyone. I mean, for yeah. me, with genetics, for my clients who have the money, we always run, do, gen, do full genetic or, or you know, comprehensive genetic workup. Gotcha. Um, but sometimes I'll have clients where they don't uh, find, because obviously this is all in private healthcare, so there might yep. be a financial issue. Or sometimes we have people who are extremely unhealthy before we start considering genetics, we just want to get the foundation in place. So if someone, they're not eating their vegetables, berries and fruits, uh, fat always comes out of a deep fryer or a tub of ice cream. Um, proteins, always something so-called brown food that's been in the deep fryer, right? Uh, sweet things are never fruits and that sort of thing. Then tinkering with genetic nuances probably won't will mean nothing because we just need to get the fundamentals in place. But once we're beyond that, I then uh, unless there's like financially there's a, an issue or it's financially not possible, then I tend to run genetics along with many other things in my clients. So I think it's also important to know that all this genetic information is in some ways just another bit of the puzzle. It's not the full story. So yeah, it's data. And you have to keep that in mind with everything else you have on the client, their symptoms, their history, what they or you together see works, doesn't work. Uh, the previous health history, things that have gone well, things that have gone really poorly, um, you know, uh, lab work, uh, imaging, and so forth. It all has to be you know, put together, and you have to be able to yeah. it's gotta find be out how much it's interpreted, and also you always have to figure out how much sort of how do you weigh the genetic information? How much information do you attribute to? to that um, or, or, or how, you know, if you're going to like score things in totality, how are you going to do that um, without make with genetics, we should you know, take them into consideration, but they're not the only thing they can't, you can't also just say they're the be all and end all yeah. of everything. Um, and I think that's been a problem both within sort of mainstream medicine, but also in private healthcare initially when genes came around. Like, they're looking at genes oh, in isolation. Yeah, yeah, it's like, we found the solution. Once we know your genes, we can predict what diseases you'll get and we can know what, you, what diseases yeah. you won't get. Uh, and, 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 you know, and everything else doesn't matter. And that just, that's if everything else had failed. I mean, there's this great saying, it's rather rude, but single factor thinking is the source of the biggest fuck-ups in biology, medicine, and healthcare. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at nutrition, so you can see that. Because first, you know, if you look at, at what things were, things were mechanisms, and genetics, then hormones, notes, blood glucose regulation, stress hormones, it's got microbiota, like it's, it's, you know, I'm not trying to downplay things, but, but they're all just another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's all just oversimplified and split into different systems rather than looking at the body as one. Exactly, yeah. And, and that, that, that usually doesn't, I mean, you can, you can choose to approach healthcare or health management or disease prevention that way, but that's rather pretty much the equivalent saying, I, I, I don't believe in gravity. And at some point, gravity <laughs> will come and bite you hard. Yeah. Uh, 
So, so, so rather than treating, like if we look at the, I don't want to delve too much into the conventional healthcare model, but rather than treat a symptom, let's treat the root cause as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, and that also, I mean, because, and, and, and that also I think is done within conventional healthcare, but there's also a lot of crisis management, which should be done first anyway. You know, if someone has pathologically high blood pressure, of course, you're going to put them on medication to yeah. get it down and yeah, that gives you time to go and look at diet, nutrition, lifestyle, stress, genes that might impact blood pressure regulation and so forth. So you can put together a long-term plan to manage what, what's an acute problem or what presents itself as an acute problem. Management now or things will go horribly wrong. Perfect. So what I want to move on to, Amaro, is when I, when I first got into researching genetics and the methylation cycle or even the act of methylation i found it very overwhelming looking at all these charts all these cycles yeah. um, so for all the listeners out there i'm sure you might have they might have heard the term methylation or the methylation cycle yeah. but like yeah. even when i first got into it, i thought an um, mthfr gene was methylation you know so there's a lot yeah. of con- confusion about it so for the listeners out there um, three questions what exactly yeah. is the act of methylation what is the methylation cycle and is more methylation always better? I'll, I'll try to make big things <laughs> short again because methylation yeah. is quite big and complex. But methylation, yeah. in some ways, it just means the transfer of methyl groups. So one of the simplest biological molecules we have are methyl groups, that CH3. So it's one carbon, three hydrogens, one free bond. So it's, okay. a, it's one of the simplest, orga- simplest organic molecules you find. And so methylation is really the process in the body where you take these methyl groups and stick them onto structures, onto proteins and molecules or remove them. And that you know, seems as simple as just a little prosthetic organic group. Why would that matter anything? Well, it does because it's used to modify all sorts of things in the body. So in order to dynamically turn genes on and off, we use methylation. So we can stick methyl groups on, literally onto genes to either turn them on or turn them off or remove them, right? So if you, your methylation is poor, then your ability to dynamically change, say, oh, we don't want to listen to those genes at the moment because that will cause trouble, uh, or yeah, we want to calm those genes over there down because they sort of code for something that we already have enough of or that's in excess. That We sort of lose that. We also use methylation to permanently silence genes. If they become irrecoverably damaged, if you get mutation, which is severe genetic damage, then we can methylate the heck out of those genes and then we won't have to listen to them ever again. If they're beyond repair anyway, why not just shut them down, um, okay. right? So just for, for, for genetic expression and, and dealing with mutation, the consequence of mutation, we need methylation. Then we use methylation both in the production and breakdown of neurotransmitters. So if we have a problem with methylation, then we might lose some of the ability to dynamically alter what messenger molecules are sent in the central nervous system, in the peripheral nervous system, and in your gut brain, the enteric nervous system. We use methylation for inactivating all sorts of molecules you want to get rid of, estrogens, histamine, environmental toxins, and so forth. So if you have a problem with medications, your ability to detoxify or biotransform all sorts of molecular waste, be that something that was generated inside your body or that came from the outside is impaired. We use methylation when we um, build a lot of different structural tissues, all from bone, which is very hard, to the softer structural tissues, the collagen, fibrin, elastin. We use methylation in controlling blood pressure and whether your arteries expand and relax or contract. We use methylation to control some of the mechanisms involved in atherosclerosis, not cholesterol levels but 
uh, methylation can be used to slow down some of the accumulation of LDL particles in your arteries or lessen the damage once that happens. We use methylation in terms of um, also in terms of producing uh, a lot of molecules that are associated with energy production. So okay. creatine is you know methylation for that coenzyme Q10. Uh, you need methylation for that. So if you have a methylation issue, that might also impact energy output at the mitochondrial level, um, right? And and we also use methylation in terms of making choline. Uh, and also use methylation to get rid of certain nutrients in excess. So if you get too much vitamin B3, as an example, then you need methyl groups um, to, to break down the excess B3 so it won't cause damage. So in some ways, methylation sort of, if you have an issue, it reaches across everywhere. It, you know, it can have impact in every single little nook and cranny of your yeah, biology and so biochemistry. And there, so therefore, you want to make sure methylation is running and you want it neither too high or too low because if it's too low, then a lot of these things might become sluggish, but if it runs too high, that could also cause problems like too rapid turnover of neurotransmitters or overproduction of neurotransmitters would be an issue as well. So more is not always better. I mean, it's like water is good for you, but uh, try forcing someone to drink 30 liters of water on a day and they will be in dire trouble. Uh, although a quarter liter of water is too little, right? That's not yeah. to say that 30 liters is exponentially better. Um, so, so that's that. You know, so, so that's that's why we need methylation. It's not the only thing, but it's certainly at the very sort of basic biochemical level. It's one of the mechanisms we have to make sure we could be able to maintain sort of dynamic fluidity of our biochemistry, respond, adapt, meet challenges, uh, compensate, repair, uh, clean up the mess afterwards, uh, make sure we maintain energy output high when we need more than normal. And so forth. Also, I forgot in terms of like breakdown of things with methylation, not just yeah. with estrogens and histamine, but also with uh, all the catecholamines. So, not cortisol, but dopamine, adrenaline, noradrenaline. We actually yeah. need methylation to get rid of those so they won't accumulate in excess. So, one of the two groups of stress hormones, we need methylation to make sure we get rid of them and to avoid elevations that will obviously push sympathetic tone too high. Okay. So, so, when you, so that, when you, that's. Go ahead. So, 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 so that's what we need methylation for. And then how do we get these methyl groups into yeah, place? So exactly. the final, the, 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 the donor of the methyl groups for most parts is a molecule called SAMe, S-adenosyl methionine. So that's actually created from methionine, one of the sulfurous amino acids you find in protein, especially in animal protein, but you can also find it in plant protein, especially from essential amino acids. An essential amino acid, yeah. So you take that and use magnesium and B2 to turn it into S-adenosyl methionine. And that's the donor for, for, for a few in exceptions. That's where you deliver and donate all these methyl groups, whether that's for creating creatine, coenzyme Q10, creating collagen, producing dopamine, breaking down serotonin, turning genes on and off, uh, you know, um, getting rid of um, unwanted substances uh, and so forth. Um, right? So we need to make sure there's enough SAMe available. And then also the, the opposite with demethylation, right? So how can mm. we, if we need to move that, that, vitamin C turns out to be quite important for that. So making sure you have enough vitamin C because sometimes you want to remove these methyl groups, especially with genes. Sometimes you want to get rid of the methyl groups to change how they're expressed. Yeah. Uh, so that's a new thing that's emerged, that I came across last year um, in, in 19. So that can actually but, help with hypermethylation? Well, it can help. At, it, can, it won't bring methyl levels down, methyl, but it will help if... At the, at the, especially at the genetic level, if there's hypermethylation of genes, 
Now, because the way you drain excess methyl groups, if you have too many of them, is to, um, you could take niacin, but obviously yep. in high doses that gets flushed and things like that. But the glycine also is an outlet for excess um, methyl groups because you okay. can get make, create dimethylglycine and trimethylglycine. So one of the yeah. buffers we have, and that's an interesting thing, right? Because we sort of, you know, tend to, with protein, once the main sources or richest source of methionine will be animal protein, we tend only to eat the meat. We won't eat the skin. We won't eat all the connective tissue or that the has organs. glycines or the organ meats as well. Uh, and, so, and especially with the connective tissue and with all the skin, right? They will have a lot of glycine. So it's almost pretty smart from nature. We have a source of methionine. And if you get excessive amounts, we also deliver the glycine. So we have like an outlet or an escape valve, a safety valve, uh, if, if there's an issue. Um, but then now we only want to eat like the meat and not nose to tail. And maybe that explains yeah. some of the associations in population studies between high meat intake and uh, poor health outcomes. Although those, there are so many, that's a whole nother story. We talk hours about it. Um, so, right, but then you have SAMI that donates a methyl group um, with a few exceptions. There in a few uh, cases you can use methylfolate for methylation. And then you get SAH, S-adenosyl homocysteine, that becomes homocysteine. And then we need to turn homocysteine back into methionine. Uh, and there are two pathways for that. One that involves folate and B12, and one that involves beta, you know, trimethylglycine. Um, and the one with trimethylglycine only runs in the liver. So in your liver, you can get trimethylglycine, since you could get from beetroots or as, an, as a source, right? And then you can take the homocysteine and turn it back into methionine to keep the cycle sort of running. So and let's talk about TMG a little bit more as well, because to yeah. my knowledge, uh, another name for TMG would be betaine, correct? Betaine, yeah. Yes. So would it be correct to say that betaine or TMG would be a methyl donor or methyl recycler? It well, it, it well, it will it will help you. It, yeah, it will help you get rid of homocysteine before it yeah. accumulates in excess to get back up to methionine that gets you a step closer to methylation again so it, it sort of it, it certainly helps to keep the pathway flowing so you get methyl groups delivered through sami you get a waste product in the form of homocysteine and you clear that and get back get, get the cycle keep the cycle spinning gotcha. um, so 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 you can say as a methyl recycler would be a, a and a homocysteine reduction reduc reduction as well would be yeah yeah because that's the thing with homocysteine it accumulates in excess on its own but this need to be quite high then it becomes directly toxic. So if homocysteine levels run about 12 to 15, depending on who you ask, then homocysteine becomes toxic on its own. It becomes toxic to your cardiovascular system. Yep. It becomes neurotoxic as well, nephrotoxic, um, excitotoxic. So, but at, even at levels lower than that, so if your homocysteine is higher than seven, there seems to be a causal association with poor health outcomes. And that's probably because that's a sign that methylation might not be running properly. Um, so at eight or nine, homocysteine levels aren't high enough to cause damage on their own, but they might suggest there's something going, going on where methylation, that remethylation really isn't happening. Yeah, and I the other way to get... All the talk about homocysteine. Go ahead. So, yeah, so the other way to get the homocysteine back up to methionine is um, by using folate and B12. Yeah. So you have what's called methylfolate. So you have that, and then you have E12 that has to catch the methyl group of methylfolate, and then they uh, donate the methyl group to methionine, and then, um, or to the homocysteine, and then that becomes methionine. So, 
Perfect. So you, you mentioned some supplements there as well that you are involved with um, donate, uh, donating a metal group and stuff like that. When we yeah. talk about hypermethylation or hypomethylation, what would some symptoms be? You mentioned a couple there, but is there any way of categorizing it a little bit more? Mm, well, because I mean, both they can be very similar. So hypermethylation might be, uh, especially if people try to drink around with methylation methylation and then they go from one end of the spectrum with a psychiatrical issue to the other one. So also, if you know, so that's why I mean, if you really want to know, you have to measure, yep. you have to go measure right. all these things. And how would you measure? methionine, within a, a blood sample where you measure homocysteine, methionine, gotcha. the whole gamut of things. Okay, perfect. Um, so I don't want to keep you too long. So give me, give me um, a shout if you've got to go. Um, are you able to do yeah. about 10 more minutes or so? I'll do a few more minutes. Yeah, that's fine. Perfect. Yeah. So uh, next question would be, when we look at genes, there's a couple of genes that are very, very popular in the media. MTR yeah. being one, maybe MTOR. Or, um, MTHFR, yeah. 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 So is there any sort of genes that you think um, for listeners it might be beneficial to talk about? And again, genes should not be looked at in isolation. They should look at... No. You look at it in the broad yeah. picture, but do you want to talk about yeah. any sort of genes in particular? That maybe well, I think you need more? to ApoE4. You need to look out for because that's one that in, greatly increases your risk of cardiovascular disease and probably also late uh, onset uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Gotcha. Um, and and it's, it tends to such make you super sensitive to all the things that you already know are an issue of cardiovascular disease. So yeah. if you have one or more copies of ApoE4, you're more sensitive. To the high fats, saturated fats, damaged fats, high carb diets, high glycemic loads, uh, oxidative stress—you um, know uh, everything like that. Then, then per so perfect. So, um, so, so ApoE4, I think you, you need yeah. to look out for, and then you also need to. Um, I mean, some the, another one is interesting to look at is FTO because that's okay. associated with slightly higher body weight. But if you move a lot, you completely abolish the fattening effects of FTO. So so that then and of course the vitamin D receptors and then we have all yep. the MTHFR which has an impact on your ability to keep methylation running. But it's not I mean MTHFR is not uh like if you have that you will have poor methylation, but it does mean all these things you need to keep methylation running, making sure you get enough folate, enough B12, maybe that you take creatine because your ability to create it on your own is, is less efficient. Gotcha. Then you need that vitamin B2 because that helps counterbalance MTHFR problems as well. Yeah. It's um, right. It, it, so, 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 for, for, for in the most part, if you have an MTHFR problem, that's not a disease. It just means you have to, you maybe don't have as much bandwidth in terms of ramping up methylation massively if you need to protect yourself to be healthy and you won't see problems or consequences from it. So, you know, so that, and then of course, we have all these genes that impact inflammation. Uh, Tumulopose factor alpha interleukin six and so forth, and they also um, that means you have those. Then you have to do more on top of things in terms of inflammation. Make sure you get the right fats, healthy food, anti-inflammatory diet, um, and you're more prone to problems if you do all the things well. You do more pro-inflammatory. Okay. Super. So just last question, Umaru, when yeah. we look at any sort of genetic uh, testing, have you got a preference of what one you would use? I, like, I'm not sure if there's much more else than salivary testing for genetics, but what's your preference there? Or is there any sort of companies that you do like to use? Well, I'm, I mean, I use DNA Life, obviously I yeah. lecture for them, but I, I like because DNA Life says we won't send to end consumer. 
yeah. we only go through practitioners because then you get that you know how to put things in appropriate context you know how to interpret and, it and you know how to help the patient interpret it exactly just get the raw data exactly and you don't have people who sort of go into a funk about things where they say oh i have mghfr now i'm dead no or you're not you're still alive <laughs> exactly uh, or i have fto therefore uh, i will be obese for the rest of my life no <laughs> which so. is, you hear quite a bit yeah so yeah. just um just to end for any listeners that might want to uh, read a bit more of your stuff now i actually uh, after the dna life course i actually went online i tried to find a bit more of your content and i struggled to find any yeah. English content, but uh, in the future, there, there isn't that. There's. Go ahead. In in the future, there will be more in English, but there is actually some. If you go on my YouTube channel and go I, back, I saw that. Years, yes, some magnesium some, some and, stuff. Yeah, and then on Monday, February seventeenth, I'll start this thirty-day uh, healthy, sustainable eating challenge with a company called Puri. So P U P P U O R I. And if you go .eu, if you go on their website, there's this thirty days of how to eat sustainable for both your health Perfect. and planetary health. Okay. And you mentioned, I think, a book at the start of the podcast that may be released in English at some point? We're looking at translating some of my books this year. So Super. Um, okay. And uh, Yeah. Is there anywhere else you, sh- um, you want the listeners to kind of go to after the podcast? Um, well, also follow my Instagram profile. I yep. also post some stuff in English there. And it's just my name, Umaro, U-M-A-H-R-O. Perfect. So I'll, I'll post that in the show notes as well. So I appreciate your time, Yamaro. I, I really, I learned personally a lot from this podcast. I'm sure the listeners will too. So I hope to have you back on in the future because, again, you're just a wealth of knowledge. And um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. If you did enjoy the content, could you please share it on your Instagram, your Facebook, or any other social media? And if you could also head over to iTunes and give me a five-star rating, I would greatly appreciate that. Also, if you do look in the show notes, I have some links of some of the things that we talked about throughout the podcast. Thank you so much, guys, and I'll see you on the next episode.